Today, as we return again to the book of Acts, I want you to remember, as we come to the action here in Acts chapter 13, why it is that we're spending time in this book. There's a couple of good reasons. The first is that the church that we read about in this story is a model church. Not only is it a church that shows us what we are to be like, that we get to see that they're devoted to the most important things, that they are really keen to take the good news of Jesus to other people. It's also a church that shows us what it will be like for us. The opposition and the problems that we will encounter along the way as we do the work of God's kingdom. But that's the, the reason why the other thing about the book of Acts is so crucial, because there will be opposition, because there will be difficulties for us as a church doing the work of the gospel. We need to see the work of God's Holy Spirit. And that's the other big thing that we're struck by as we read our way through this book. It shows us the power of God's Holy Spirit. And today, when we look at this incident here in chapter 13, it is such a big reminder to us as to why the church back then and why the church today needs the work of the Holy Spirit. We need God's Holy Spirit to be powerfully present with us, enabling us to do what God has called us to do. So, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me again, please, to Acts chapter 13 and to this passage that we read together in verses 4 to 12. And the last time we looked at this chapter, we looked at the opening verses. So, hopefully, you can remember a little bit about the background to what we're reading today. Remember that as we come into chapter 13, that from this point on in the story of Acts, we get to read about the, the gospel spreading out of Jerusalem. And we start to read the story of other churches being born in different parts of the world. So, that last time, we looked at a church in a place called Antioch, and there were a couple of notable things about this church. The first thing is that it was a diverse church. It, it was a church that had a diverse leadership. The Bible teachers in that church came from all kinds of backgrounds and ethnic groups. And it's a great reminder that the gospel is for everyone, that the gospel is something that can change the lives of people from all kinds of backgrounds and places, ourselves included. And then in verses 2 to 3, we got to see that this church in Antioch was a church that was willing to give of its best for the sake of the gospel, because in obedience to the Holy Spirit, this church was prepared to release two of its best people, two of its most talented teachers, Paul and Barnabas, to do mission work elsewhere. And we thought about the example that that sets for us. We should be the same, willing to give of our people for the sake of the gospel reaching other places. So, as we take up the story today, Saul and Barnabas have arrived on Cyprus, 
and they're preaching the gospel to the people of that island. And just before we look at what it is that happened in this place called Paphos, there's one wee detail in this passage today that is so important for us to to read and acknowledge, and yet it is such a small detail, it could easily pass us by. So, if you look at verse 9 again, there Luke talks about Saul, who was also called Paul. And that's a really important verse. That's actually a very significant moment in this story, and indeed in the history of the church. Because it's the first time that Saul, who we know was wondrously converted to Christ, we read about that back in Acts chapter 9, it's the first time he is referred to as Paul. And we know all about the Apostle Paul. He writes so much of the New Testament that we have in the Bible. And it's worth asking what that name change is all about. Why does it happen? Is there any significance in that? Well, it's not actually him being given a new name. Rather, he's being referred to by another of his names. And to be honest, we don't know the precise reason why at this point Saul became known as Paul, but there's a couple of good explanations. Saul was his Jewish name, and Paul was his Roman name because he was a Roman citizen. And so, the name change symbolizes that the gospel is coming to new people, that now the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only being preached to those from a Jewish background, but it's being preached to Gentiles, to those who come from a non-Jewish background. And of course, that's really important for us because that includes us this is a reminder that the gospel kept going further and further out until eventually it arrived in this place. And people in this part of the world got to hear the good news of Jesus and be changed by God's Spirit. But another thing about this, perhaps this name change or being known by another of his names symbolizes the great change that had happened in Paul's life. For Paul had been transformed from being a persecutor of Christ to a preacher of Christ, or he had been transformed from being a despiser of Christ to being a disciple of Jesus. That this name change is a very tangible reminder that Paul had become a new creation in Christ. He had become an entirely new person because that's what the gospel and that's what God's Holy Spirit does. Now, today, I don't think anyone here in church has changed your name because you became a follower of Jesus. But the truth is, there are people here today, I look around and I see some of you here today, and you have become a new creation in Christ. In Jesus, you have become a new person. And for you personally, you have been able to recognize and feel the difference. And other people looking on are able to see the difference. And that's a really good thing. 
And maybe for others here today, this has not been your experience, and you need to be changed by God's Holy Spirit. So, I want you to see that God is well able to do that. If He could do that with this man, Saul, stroke Paul, He can do this with anyone. And so, in this passage, we meet two people who display very different attitudes and responses to the gospel. And we could describe one of them as being an example to follow, and the other one is a warning to heed. Let's look at the first person who appears in this passage, the first of the people in this time that Saul and Barnabas meet. And his name is Bar-Jesus. We, we meet him in verse 6. And just to keep us all on our toes, and there are lots of names in this passage, Bar-Jesus is also referred to in this passage as Elamus, which was his Greek name. But we'll, we'll, we'll keep you right, or I'll keep you right about that as we go along. But if we think about this man's Jewish name, Bar-Jesus, it was a pretty common name at the time. That Bar, and you get that name in the Bible, don't you? Barabbas and Barnabas. The Bar really means son. It's a bit like our Mick or our O in front of a name. It's really saying that this person was the son of Jesus or Joshua, which was a common name at the time. And Luke doesn't make clear the exact circumstances in which Bar-Jesus first meets up with Paul and Barnabas, but he's described as being a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet. This guy is involved in pretty dodgy stuff. He would have been into mysticism and black magic. And what becomes really clear in this passage is that Bar-Jesus was an opponent of the gospel. And the other big thing about him that is important for us to know is that Luke tells us in verse 7 that Bar-Jesus was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, another big name, and so we'll meet him now. Sergius Paulus was a high-ranking Roman official. He may have even been the governor of the whole island of Cyprus. And he proves to be an example for us to follow. If you look at verse 7 and what Luke tells us about him, he describes him as the proconsul, an intelligent man, and he tells us that he sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the Word of God. And what a golden opportunity for these missionaries. This is pretty amazing if you're a minister or you're a, a gospel worker or if you're a believer in general. If someone says to you, here, I'd love you to call around because I want you to tell me about the Bible. I want you to share with me God's Word. As a minister, I would think, happy days. This is amazing that someone wants to receive God's Word. So, what a good lead for us to follow in our lives, that we should want to hear what God says to us. And I ask you, do you want that? How do you engage with God's Word when you're here at church? Is this the bit where you kind of switch off and zone out and think about everything else other than the Word of God? It's a big challenge for us. 
And as we think about what happens next in this story, in this passage, we recognize that the work of sharing the gospel is tough. It is hard work. That's because there are people who do not want to hear it, because the gospel confronts their philosophy and their approach to life. The Word of God shines a light that exposes the darkness and the emptiness of their life and their way of life. There are people who want to be in charge of their lives, and they never want to hear the truth that actually it is God who is in charge. And so, we might be tempted to hanker back to a time when gospel work was easier. Sometimes we do that. Oh, I remember when. Don't we say that in church? I remember when there was a more sympathetic hearing to the message that we brought, when our culture and our our way of thinking was much more shaped by God's Word. But people, this passage reminds us that there have always been people who are completely opposed to the gospel, people who don't want the light of God's Word exposing their darkness, who don't want the disruption that the gospel would inevitably bring to their life. And Bar Jesus was such a person. Look at verse 8. We're told of him, remember this is his other name, but Elamus, the sorcerer, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Why did he do that? What, what's this all about? What is his problem? Well, it's because the gospel, the light of the gospel threatened his way of life. It threatened the position that he had in the governor's household and his court. Therefore, it ultimately threatened his livelihood. Because if this man, this ruler, Sergius Paulus, if he turned to Christ, then he would surely get to see the darkness and the emptiness of the things that Bar Jesus was teaching him. He would know that what Christ offers is so much better, that Christ gives us life in all of its fullness. And folks, we need to know, based on what we are reading here, that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, there will be people who will be opposed to it, There will be people who will try and stop others hearing it and responding to it. In fact, they'll go to great lengths to turn people away from the faith. That might be a spouse or a family member in a home not wanting their household disrupted because someone in that house is having their life turned upside down by Christ. It might be someone who is exploiting someone else because they don't want to lose the hold that they have over that person, and they realize that the gospel sets people free. And so, what this means is that Christians here today, us as a church, we need to be ready for the backlash. 
But when we encounter opponents of the gospel, people who are so opposed to it as Bar-Jesus was, what do we do about that? How should we as a church handle such people? Well, you might imagine that the answer is to seek to understand them better, to accommodate their views, to be careful not to annoy them or offend them. But I want you to see what happens here. More particularly, I want you to hear what it is that Paul said to this man, Elamus, bar Jesus. Look at verse 10. Paul says to him, you are the child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Well, hold back, Paul, why don't you? It's, it's pretty full on, isn't it? And if you remember back what I said about this man, Elamas's Jewish name, remember that name, Bar-Jesus? It literally means son of salvation. But Paul looks him straight in the eye and he says, you're not a son of salvation, you're a child of the devil. And when people are opposed to the gospel, that means they are opposed to God's message. They're opposed to God's plan for the world. They are opposed to God Himself. And by consequence, whether aware of this or not, they are siding with the devil. They're opposed to everything that is right. And so part of gospel ministry, and this is hard, but part of gospel ministry is standing up to those who oppose the gospel. And I'm really struck by what we're told about Paul in verse 9, that he looked straight at Elamis. He wasn't apologetic. He wasn't kind of cowering in fear. He, he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with this man. He looked him in the eye and he said, this is who you are. And we need to stand up to gospel opponents in the same way. But what a warning to those who have no time for the gospel here today. It's a great reminder that when it comes to the gospel, actually, we can't take a neutral position. We can't sit on the fence. The bottom line is you either accept and believe what God says about Himself, and what He tells you you need in your life, or we reject it, and therefore we are opposed to everything that is right. And we understand that being an enemy of the living God, well, that's not a good position to be in. Paul's words are strong, but ultimately, this is the Lord's rebuke of this man, Bar-Jesus. Because if you look back at verse 9, we're told that Paul spoke these words filled with the Holy Spirit. He was guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit to say this. And then if you look at verse 11 and how the rebuke finishes and then what happens next, Paul ends by saying, now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time. 
not even able to see the light of the sun. And here's what happens. Immediately mist and darkness came over him. And he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Remember how we're describing the book of Acts during this, this series? Based on Kevin DeYoung's description, we describe this as the story of the continuing work of Jesus. A reminder that Jesus continues to be at work in His church and in His world. And what we get to see in this passage here ultimately is that the Lord will not let anything or anyone stop His work of salvation. That's so important. Listen to that again. The Lord will not allow anyone to get in the way of His salvation plan. And so, therefore, in this particular occasion, the Lord moves in a miraculous act of judgment. And it may surprise people because we expect miracles to be all about putting things right. We expect miracles to be about healing and restoring and making new. But this is the opposite. This is a miracle that is bringing blindness. And it shows us the seriousness of Elamas's offense in opposing the gospel. It shows us that the Lord is powerful and He's never to be messed with. And so, bar Jesus, our Elamis, is a warning to be heeded. People don't reject the gospel. And please, please never stand in the way of God's message or God's work. Never. And while Bar-Jesus is a warning to be heeded, we finish off by looking at this final verse and saying that this other man, Sergius Paulus, is an example to follow. Because listen what happens at the end, verse 12, when the proconsul, that Sergius Paulus, saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And his example really stands out to us because lots of people in our world get caught up in signs and wonders and they want something miraculous. You, you get that from people. I even encounter that with people sometimes on the, the fringes of the church. If only God would do this or if only He would completely restore this person or if only God would miraculously intervene here, then I would believe, then I would accept God, and, and I would definitely believe. But look at this verse so carefully. Yes, Sergius Paulus, he witnessed these events, and no doubt he was impacted by what had happened to bar Jesus, of course. But what does Luke tell us? This man was not amazed at the miracle. He was amazed at the teaching. He was amazed at the gospel. And it is the gospel. It is God's good news. That's what really matters. That's what should grab us and grip us in our life. And honestly, if you are not amazed 
that God would send His Son from heaven into this world to die for you in order that you can be forgiven and accepted by Him. If that gospel does not grip you, then absolutely nothing else will convince you to turn to Him. As we finish, we think about what this passage means for us as a church. And it's a passage that inspires and encourages us that if we are serious about reaching our community with the gospel, and hopefully we are, well, we will meet opposition. There will be pushback from people with vested interests who want to see others remaining exactly as they are. They don't want the gospel bringing about any change at all. And so, we as a church need to be courageous in the way that Paul and Barnabas were. And above all else, we need to remember that ultimately what we're involved in is the continuing work of Jesus. It is the Lord's business of changing people's lives. It is His business. It's just that He gives us jobs in the family business by His grace. But we remember that what this church is about is the continuing work of Jesus. And what we have learned today is absolutely nobody, nobody, no philosophy, no political allegiance, no individual, no group in this society, nobody will get the better of the Lord. Amen.